Welcome to another episode of the official podcast of The Unsexy Startup. This is your host, Samai Parikh. In this episode, we are interviewing someone who I consider a good friend and a mentor in the VC community. Kate Shillo is a GP of Upslope Ventures, a VC fund based out of Colorado that focuses on early stage investments. Kate has a phenomenal track record in the business world as she started out as Ken Lura's executive assistant and chief of staff at Huffington Post since its inception. And then she led on to being on a part of a founding team as a director of operations at Lur Hippo. For those who aren't familiar with Lur Hippo, they're known for investing in some of the biggest companies out there, such as Casper, Venmo, BuzzFeed, and the list goes on. Kate is probably one of the most badass VCs that I know, especially with experience in the consumer-focused companies. On this episode, Kate will be talking about her come up with Huffington Post, her transition to VC, and building one of the best VC funds, and also a lot of the common fires she sees founders make early on. But before we get into the episode, here are a few words from our sponsor. A huge thank you to our sponsor, Brex, the first corporate credit card for startups. Brex founders Enrique Dubugras and Pedro Franceschi built a payments business in Brazil, but faced a particular unsexy time getting rejected for a corporate credit card when they came to the U.S. So they launched Brex with instant online signup, no founder liability required, and limits 10 to 20 times higher than standard cards. Sign up for Brex and get card fees waived by entering the code UNSEXY during signup. Kate, it's great to have you on the podcast. I think from the time we started chatting about the show, you provided tons of valuable advice on how to position our brand. Thank you so much to me for having me. Um, I'm excited to be here and to talk about some of the unsexy sides of venture capital and some of the hard work that goes into it. Because I think right now we have so much... Um, so much content going around in the media about venture capital and, and who's getting funded and what big firms are starting out. And, and um, there's more to it than meets the eye. So I'm excited to share some of the, the backstory. Let's dive into some uh, topics our listeners would love to hear about. I mean, what got you started at Huffington Post um, as the executive assistant and chief of staff to Ken Lehrer? And how did you transition into VC afterwards? Um. So good question. I'd say I was I was very young. I was working in New York. It was one of my first jobs. Um, the job I had before that was working as an executive assistant to Martha Stewart. Um, did that for about two and a half years. So I'd say the transition from an EA to another EA job was not difficult. I actually didn't want to be an EA after I had worked for Martha. I wanted to go to business school. I wanted to learn how to run companies. I just there, there was more that I wanted to challenge myself with. And um, Ken was the perfect boss. He was, it was the perfect time to meet him. Uh, then I think it was 2008. Uh, what I didn't realize is the market was going to tank. And this was not a great time to be transitioning jobs. But, um, you know, he had just founded the Huffington Post and it was very early on. It might have been like the 20th employee. So it was still a very unproven business and brand. You know, when I, told friends and family I was leaving a large known company for an online newspaper. People were like, what? Like, are you crazy? And do they give you benefits? Like all those sort of basic questions. Um, but the great thing was, is that Ken was involved with a lot of different businesses. So it wasn't just HuffPo that we were working on. Um, you know, things like Betaworks he was chairman of and a couple other interesting media companies and um, now, you know, Buzzfeed is one of those that he's also chairman of, but that was, you know, early, early days when Buzzfeed was like two people. Um, 
So I will say that it was a huge learning curve for me. I was not tech savvy, um, but you know, I was uh, coming from an omni media company where we had everything from physical books and magazines to a internet department. I'm using air quotes as I say that. So it was sort of an old media to new media transition for me. And Ken was doing uh, angel investing, which I had never experienced before. I didn't know what investing in private companies entailed. But um, for about two years, I assisted him with that, you know, whether it was meeting with companies, you know, closing the documents, um, making sure that his team, uh, accounting team, right, had the right information to, you know, track the transaction. Um, And then it was just helping those companies along the way. So after two years of kind of doing this informally, you know, with helping Ken and his son, Ben Lear, they were kind of doing it in tandem. Uh, They just decided one day they wanted to start a venture fund. Um, I remember the day Ken walked in and was like, we're going to start a fund. And I had no, I'd never heard of a fund. I didn't even know what that was. You know, I, um, I had an English degree from Middlebury. I wasn't, uh, you know, trained in finance in that way. Um, So, and actually my dad's a CPA by trade. So I do remember calling him up and I was like, what's a fund? And he just kind of like laughed at me. Um, You know, and so that, that was the beginning I'd say of my uh, venture education. And that was around like 2009. And um, we closed the first fund, which is called Lear Ventures in 2010, January. Um, I mean, I just remember it being a really, I don't know, like sort of, casual process because we didn't have any formality, you know, like we didn't even have a, a true venture lawyer at the time. Like, I mean, just so much of it was us figuring it out, kind of feeling our way in the dark, mostly me. Um, and our team consisted of Ken, Ben and myself. Um, and they both had full-time jobs doing other things. So it really meant that I was doing all the figuring out part and then going to them and explaining like what we had to do next. And it was just, um, it was crazy. You know, we went, we were on a tear very quickly. And then Jordan Cooper joined us as, as a principal. And he was wonderful because he had come from General Catalyst and like had some more experience, but he'd be the first to tell you that he was not process oriented. Um, he was much more casual than that. So for a long time, for the first, the cycle of the first fund, which lasted about 16 months, um, we didn't have any real process. I mean, I'm talking no investment memos. Like we were just, the the market for us was active because it was early New York um, investment period. And, and there was just, again, the market was down and there wasn't a lot of VCs or even angels doing early stage investing at that time. So we had, we were like kind of one of the only groups in town that would like take a meeting with you if you were an entrepreneur. Um, so I would say that all of that activity happened really quickly. Um, and from there, we raised a fund, I don't want to say almost every year, but really close. Um, you know, in 2011, uh, Ken and the board had sold the Huffington Post to AOL. And so we were kind of going through that process of kind of offloading his responsibilities there. And then in the meantime, we were like raising our second fund for Lear, Hippo. Well, it wasn't Hippo yet. Um, and Eric Hippo came on from the Huffington Post. He was the president there. He'd been on the board of the Huffington Post and he had also worked for SoftBank. So it was wonderful to have like 
another adult in the room who had come from an established firm and like knew how things were done and, and like, you know, gave us some direction. Uh, cause I was craving that. I mean, I, I just remember, you know, doing my best, but I, you know, I'd be at the office till midnight reading closing binders <laughs> cause I had no idea what we were, we were signing and the legal documents. Um, if anyone's ever done an equity round can be really, really long. Um, so it was fun. I mean, we did close to 60 something investments in, I think 16 or 18 months for the first fund, which is insane. Like it's so much, so many meetings, so many companies. And it just continued from there. Um, I did three funds with Lear, uh, in my five years with them, um, built up the team to about 10 by the time I departed and we had had close to 200 investments and we really got ourselves buttoned up on the operations side to take fund to fund capital. And like, you know, we were building a firm. It wasn't, it wasn't just sort of an experiment anymore. And at that point we had become a more of a brand name and that's where Eric really, I would say like was the driver and, and it's now Lyra Hippo Ventures or Lyra Hippo. Um, but it was just thrilling to, to build a new brand and to build a firm from scratch and, and to, I would say not, not do it with the traditional, um, venture mentality. I think in some ways we went about it more like a startup cause that's what we knew, but to inherit, we didn't inherit some of the old school ways of doing things. We were a little more quick on the draw with, with, uh, our process, but, um, obviously it's worked out. So that was a fun time. And like, just to take a step back, how was like, how was, what were the challenges you were dealing with, with, you know, you're an EA to Martha Stewart, right? It, it seems like you've had this track record of working closely with extremely successful and known people to the public. Um, you know, what was that transition leaving the bigger company and then going into, um, getting into HuffPost directly, like, like what were people saying to you? Like what was going through your head during that transition? Cause I think you can relate some of these personal life, um, instances, uh, you know, similar to like a lot of founders, right. They're leaving, working for some big company or they're, they're burning the ships. They're starting their own venture, whether it's a VC fund or a, a company, you know, what, what, what was going through your head when you were like, okay, I'm going to jump the ship now. And yeah, start this. yeah. So, I mean, to give you a paint you a picture, right? I was very young. Like, I think I, I was 26 or something around that transition time. Um, I think I was 27 when I started working for the Huffington Post. So, still in my 20s, still experimenting um, with my career, meaning I was still learning. And the fact that I had identified that I wanted to learn more about business, you know, being at the high level, working with Martha and the executive team. I got to see a lot of large business decisions and obviously these were affecting a multi-million dollar business. Um, and, you know, and the business was not doing well then because a lot of businesses were not doing well when the market was going down. And so the early indications were showing. Um, but for me, I was, what was working well with Martha is that I was sort of special projects with her. So she and I would kind of create these ideas and then, you know, try to pitch them to the board to get project funding. So it was not on like a startup within a parent company. Um, but I found a lot of roadblocks there. So for me personally, I was just frustrated with feeling like we'd spend all this time and creative energy. And, and then like some board members would just not feel it for, you know, plenty of reasons. 
and all that work that I spent maybe 12 months on would just die. Um, so I wanted to go to an environment where yes was more of an answer than no. And Ken was just that guy. I mean, probably every six months, and I didn't know this when I started working for him, but every six months he was like, let's do another idea. And like this, and it was, it was really fun. But the, the, the jumping from the comfortable company where you have benefits and, um, a nice salary and like, it's really ironed out on that side to, I remember walking into my office and, and Ken was like, you'll have to buy yourself a computer, you know, cause like we didn't have an office really, like we didn't have a functioning environment yet. So that was, that was more my speed. I, I realized in that transition that I was a builder and that this was more what I, I was good at. And, um, I liked finding systems and putting things in place. And so emotionally I was more, um, fulfilled with that, but I certainly had to explain to friends and family about this risk that I was taking. Cause they sort of looked at me like I was crazy, but I was young enough where, you know, I didn't have two kids and a, and a mortgage to worry about. So I think a lot of entrepreneurs were taking risks at this, that age where it's really just you failing. If it, if it fails, it's not affecting, you know, an immediate family where you have financial responsibility to, I, I, I say, take the risk, you know, cause you're going to learn so much more, um, than being in that comfortable environment. And, uh, you know, the exciting thing is, is I think year two into working with Ken, I, I was hiring Columbia Business School students as our interns. And, and that was sort of an ironic joke for me. I wanted to go to Columbia as a business school student. So. And that's, that's pretty interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it feels like so many people care about what other people think. And, and when you're able to like, just gut the risk and kind of forget what people say, leave it at the roadside. I think you're able to effectively uh, start your venture, whatever it may be. You have to know what you can do too. You know, like I, I've never been a person who shied away from hard work or, or just go figure it out. Right. Like I don't ever doubt my ability to, to put, you know, something in place to get something done. Um, and I really honed that skill working for Martha because there, there wasn't any time to say, oh, I'm not really sure how to do that. Like you just had to do it um, or you didn't have a job. So I'd say the training that I learned, you know, in that environment um, just was wonderful for anything I did going forward because I just I never doubt my ability to to execute. So like working under like Ken and Martha, like these, these hyper-focused driven individuals, I mean, what are like one trait from each like that you've taken away that you were just like, I've absorbed completely by being around this person? Um, that's a great question. You know, I remember Martha said to me one time we were, I don't know, working in, in her kitchen or something on a weekend. And I, I had some kind of doubt around something we were talking about. And she... <laughs> was so emphatic with her response. She's like, of course you can go do that. Of course, like you can never not, you, you can't doubt yourself. Like, and it was such a good um, lesson in, in confidence around, and, and that was actually, I had always been living that mentality, but I had like a moment of doubt in front of her and it was great because she just sort of verbally like corrected my course by just being like, no, 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 you have to just go do it. And there, there's no way around it. Um, and her confidence and just was a good reminder to me that, yeah, it's, it's really so much like 90% mental. Um, and 
Ken, I would say, you know, they both taught me the creativity of business. Um, I think it was, I learned it with Martha and then it was emphasized with Ken. Um, Ken has so much fun at work. Like I had the most amazing time working there. I mean, we laughed more than anything, which is like one of the best, you know, environments you can ever be in, in a work environment. So I think that that was a good lesson in enjoying your work. Like if it's not enjoyable and it's hard, meaning like you're hitting a lot of roadblocks and people aren't um, wanting to work with you, then it's probably not worth doing. But somehow we were always getting, you know, people drawn to us um, as like wanting to work with us. And that was, that was the best part. Like I, I would say him, his ability to teach me how to work smarter and select the projects you want and, and to really drive things through that, that was an amazing lesson. And like diving more into Lara Hippo, I mean, what, what were some of the challenges building a VC fund, right? I, I don't think it's talked about enough at all to, uh, with, with VC funds. Um, and I, people essentially maybe founders think that it's, it may be cushy or, you know, starting a fund is, is super simple, but fundraising itself is super hard. Yeah. Um, what about, you know, what about these, uh, Larry Hippo at one point was a micro fund, right? Like I'm a VC, I'm working at a micro fund right now. Right. And so, it, and it's not easy to fundraise. It's, it's not easy to, uh, pitch your fund to LPs and be like, hey, we're the next big dream. Like you should buy into us. I mean, right. with some of those fires, I don't think they're talked about, but go into the fires of building LH or just building a VC fund in general. Right. And so um, I would say that there's different categories of venture, right? You know, now we're seeing um, just this birth of so many different groups coming into the space. You've got people from like private equity dipping down and there's a lot of different terminologies too. I mean, we're seeing impact investing come on to play and like impact the word impact means so many different things to so many people. And so I just caution this by saying to entrepreneurs, as you're evaluating um, institutions, financial institutions for investing in your and your company, like they're not the same. And, and you have to do your diligence on them to figure out how they're structured. And I say this because, yes, like Lear Hippo was an originally um, a, a micro fund, which I think that term was even like coined when we were kind of starting in 2010. Uh, we were definitely called a super angel at one point because... Um, which was funny because it wasn't one person's money. Like, you know, it was a fund. Um, so traditionally, uh, funds are like, it's called a space fade, like your, your middle money managers, right? So you're taking money from either a group or several individuals, high net worth individuals, family offices, or fund of funds or strategics, whomever you decide to raise money from, and you're putting it in a pot and you're deploying it out to private companies. Um, so you're sitting on you know, what feels like sometimes a mountain of cash, but obviously you have to call capital. You can't just draw, like, say I raised a fund of 50 million. I'm not sitting on 50 million at all times. Like it's my job as a fund to manage IRR and call capital as I need it. So you really are anticipating like what you think your spend is going to be on a quarter by quarter basis, both for an initial investments and follow on investments. So it's, it's, it's definitely money managing. Um, the building layer um, we just didn't, we didn't really kind of know what we were doing. We had an idea, 
But um, there's a way in which, you know, an individual in a family office kind of likes to be courted, talked to, um, communicated with once you've raised money from them and and vice versa, you know, like through that whole process of how your relationship is going to work. And it's a different process from a fund to fund basis as well. Um, you know, so much like startups are going from like a pre-seed seed and series A, you kind of have to learn how to communicate with more sophisticated investors because their expectation is going to be like no lapse in reporting. And like, they want to have things done on a certain cadence. Maybe each firm has a different way of doing things. Um, and so it's your ability to suss that out before you have that relationship. And then obviously adhere to it once you do have that relationship. Um, so that's a big part of it. If we're sitting in the middle of, you know, two groups of both our limited partners, meaning our investors, and then our, um, portfolio companies, our, our investments, we have to be excellent communicators on both sides, um, and communicating what's happening so that they all feel as though whether they want to read those reports or not, like there's a, there's a way in which they can get in touch with us. So building systems and, uh, infrastructure to keep that up. If, you know, that's where you start to really build a firm versus building just a fund. Um, and I say that because there's a lot of groups out there today that are experimenting, with um, managing money for the first time. And that's fine because we were new at one point as well. But you have to figure out if this is a group that's going to go on to fund two and they're just going to be VCs sort of for life or if um, it's a revolving door or if they just kind of tried it and they're actually really more interested in doing some other business and they kind of go off and do that. So um, that's your job as an entrepreneur to kind of figure out what's behind the curtain. And, um, they're not always going to tell you and they don't have to tell you. So it's, it's a little bit um, more delicate than that, but, um, you know, and, and so much of this is, uh, designed around, like I said, the communication and then that stems to reporting and, um, you know, and I mean by reporting is, if you're not a family office and there's a lot of funds today that are calling themselves da 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 venture capital, um, but they might be just a very wealthy family that's looking to diversify their investments. And so they pool together maybe $10 million and they set it aside on their balance sheet that's going to go be dedicated to um, technology companies. And they don't really have to do reporting in the same way that I had to at Lear and I do at Upslope, um, where I have a number of investors that need to know what's going on on a quarter by quarter basis. And then they also need to get their tax K-1s at the end of the year. And I'm audited by an audit team once a year. And so this is like heavy, heavy operational um, uh, documentation that I need to supply on any given basis. And with family offices or even strategics, they're just kind of reporting maybe to some CFO or a financial department that is just kind of, you know, making sure the numbers work for that allotted um, amount of money that they've, they've categorized for investment. And I don't mean to dumb it down to that because I know it's much more complex, but there's a difference, right? We have someone to answer to as a traditional VC fund um, and other groups may not. So I say that and that decisions are made very differently when you have different structures around how you're organized. What's, what's a, it's interesting. What's, what's a challenge with like 
you know, having to answer to someone because of a fiduciary responsibility um, compared to these F- SFOs, these single family offices. I mean, um, you, you, this was like when you, when you were with, uh, with, when you were with Ken, you guys started Lair Hippo. I mean, do you were like, were you, you were like, how are you dealing with those challenges of like doing capital calls and like, like, mm. like reporting finances and, and talking to family offices? Like, how did you learn that? Uh, we learned every day. Um, and a lot of it was just, you know, we learned on the job, right? Like it, first time we had to do our first close for the fund, I was like, how does this work? You know, and I'm talking to our lawyers and, and like, we have to send out information to those individuals and family offices because they were looking for direction from us, you know? So it was much, a lot of it was just sort of fly by the seat of your pants, figure it out. And then, um, refined over how many times you do it, like anything else, right? A first time, a, a founder probably sends a quarterly report to the, their investors. It's probably a little rough around the edges. And then as you get used to doing it, you know, by year five, like you may have a very dialed in process. Um, so the same thing is true, right? Like, a lot of the people that we invested from initially, and the same is true of um, ventures when we first started out, is that they're, they're people that are close to your organization. Uh, you have a long-time friendship with maybe some of these individuals that could be friends and family. Um, they're used to your business acumen and, and your style of working. So there's a trust level that's there. Also, there's a beautiful thing called an operating agreement, um, which legally you draw up, uh, and I say you meaning like your partnership draws up with your um, lawyer, and that outlines a lot of the way that the fund's going to function over the course of its life. And you're also planning this to be around a decade-long process, right? So this is certainly a marathon, not a sprint. But um, there's different cycles to a fund, right? Like there's the initial phase of here's what we plan on doing. Here's our differentiator. And then we're going to start deploying initial capital into initial investments. Um, and you haven't hit follow-ons yet. You haven't hit those groups that come back and say, Hey, it's been a year and we're raising our series A now. So that's, that's when you sort of hit that midway point And a lot of the money's going out, very little's coming back, meaning you haven't sold a company yet, or, you know, companies will definitely die before you probably sell because in year two to year four, it's like the bell curve death chasm. And then it kind of goes up again of, of companies that are starting to make their exit or um, are acquired and that sort of thing. And then the life cycle of that fund then sort of becomes more, I'd say you're just managing out those investments. So you've gone through maybe the follow-on period, you've done with initial investments and then you can start to see the shape of the fund and how many investments you've made and, and really who your winners are. They start to emerge at that point. And then you can kind of predict what it's going to look like in terms of a theoretical return. Obviously, none of that is set in stone. It's just anticipating. Um, and then you're managing, hopefully you're doing distributions, right? Um, and you're, that means money back to your investors. So the whole time, it's just continually communicating expectations around like, we thought this company was a winner and now it's a dud and here's why. You really don't want to have stuff come out of the woodwork from one quarter to one quarter and say, 
they're doing amazing. And then all of a sudden they shut down. Like, again, that's your fiduciary responsibility to um, forecast events. And so you have to keep in touch with those companies and, and really get a read for what they're doing, even if you're not a lead investor. Um, so it, it's, it's a really hands-on process in terms of keeping a thumb on what's happening. And you multiply that by investments, right? Like we had three close to, no, close to 200 investments by the time I left. So our whole team kind of had to know by quarter by quarter basis what was happening with all 200 companies um, so that we could tell different groups of investors. And, and then that's the complicated thing of your organizing, right? Like this, these two investors are in two funds, but they're not in the third fund. You know, I mean, it becomes like a, an amazing web of complex, you know, movement around who has access to what and, um, you know, where is their money? And speaking of like the 200 investments you guys made over over time with Lerhipa, I mean, and even with Upslope, right? What are some of the fires you've seen with founders as an investor? And and for those specific one or two fires that you've constantly seen, how would you navigate through those from your point of view? It's um, a great question. You know, so I've done in my career now, I think 281 investments in like 10 years, which sometimes can look like a lot or little depending on what you're used to seeing. Um, but it's almost always the same thing. It's always around, it's related to cash management issues, right? Um, everything's a bit of a pressure cooker in the early days. You're just, you have more time than you have money and you have less resources and you're just trying to get a handle on whatever your product is, be it SaaS or consumer facing and who's going to love you the most and what's going to take them, you know, what, what's it going to take for them to buy with you on the regular? And that testing period, uh, if you've got 24 months, like you're lucky, you know, and then if you can convince, um, you know, and I'd say like having your customer give you cash is the best environment because it gives you options and then you can be more flexible around how you take money to grow the business and scale, right? Like venture is for scale not for keeping your business afloat, um, which is where we have all these bridge rounds come in uh, these days is because you get into that um, sort of vice mentality, I'd say, where you're like rock and hard place. I figured out the thing that's going to make everyone transact. And now I ran out of money. I just need another million dollars to chest out this theory. And I swear like the business is going to go here. That's what I see all day long from iterating from an idea to a product. And it's really hard to do that when it's like two guys and a dog, you know, with, with an idea coming out of an accelerator or, uh, you know, weekend hackathon or something, or even like a business school, uh, business idea. So that iteration of sort of the first two years of your business where you're working on employee um, dynamics and and just getting your product to market and getting consistency, it's always a money issue. So I can't stress enough, like finding a good team to help you manage money and being really cash savvy. Um, it just, it gives you options. I mean, on the flip side, I had a couple of companies that were really, really tight on all those things. And they were like cash flow positive way earlier than they ever expected. And I was always like, when are you going to raise venture money again? And they're like, don't really need to. Um, and it's great because, you know, they had options of when they wanted to raise. Um, it wasn't a pressure on shit. Like we got to keep the lights on 
and and we'd have to go back to that firm and and see if they'll be sympathetic around writing us a check. So I, I just can't stress enough, like when you're starting out, like pretend you have, you may have a 24 month runway, pretend you have six months, like just just keep it tight because um, it's just so hard to go back and, and wish you had that, you know, million dollars or $500,000 to access again from day one. It's funny you say that. Like I see tons of founders, like especially like once they get their series A or they're in their late seed, they'll go buy a fancy office and then like unnecessarily hire and then have this like churn and burn yeah. culture. It's pretty yeah. funny. And that's part of why, um, you know, companies like Galvanize started to evolve and you're seeing such a, you know, big footprint for WeWork. Um, it's, it's really nice to feel like you've made it at that stage where, and, and we did, you know, we had a similar thing at Lyra. Like, I mean, we all wanted to be in these nice big offices, but we were still working on Ikea furniture. And I was the one watching the purse strings for our management fees. And I would much rather hire another like analyst than buy really fancy chairs. Like that doesn't help us get better deals. Um, and if anything, actually, I think the entrepreneurs felt at home when they came to our office because we were just as scrappy as they were in terms of like, you know, we weren't dealing with like a really fancy environment here. And they were like, Hey, do you have any room on your desk? So we can hang out. <laughs> right. And it, 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 that's an interesting thing. I mean, what with, with like, like being a scrappy VC, I mean, slash startup, I mean, do you say from like everything you've said, like, do you feel like the best takeaway point is to be like, Hey, like run lean, like watch every single dollar you spend, um, like, at any stage or is it, is there a, is there a time where they can kind of take their foot off the pedal a little and be a little more flexible with how they spend? Yeah. I think any entrepreneur who's gone through the cycle will tell you, you can't ever take your foot off the pedal. Like I just, I, I see it from, you know, people who've built huge billion dollar businesses and they still want to make sure that they're um, not being frivolous in terms of spend because it, if you're spending and sort of bleeding in one area because you're either not watching the spend or you feel like there's room to go, then you're, you're giving up something else. It could be maybe a, an experimental idea that could turn into something really big. I, I just think it's something that you always have to watch. Like, you know, I think anyone, any entrepreneur will tell you that that's just, you don't ever take for granted, like money coming in the door and just like letting it go out. And and one last question, Kate. I mean, what would you tell yourself ago seven years ago from what you know now and why? Because you've you've probably had some of the craziest transitions I've I've even witnessed. Not witnessed personally, but it, from what you've told me, from what I've heard, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, so seven years ago would have been 2011. We'd have been on our second fund. We were selling the Huffington Post. Um, <laughs> so that time period. I remember being completely underwater, like work-wise, you know, like we had, um, we were just doing so many things at once and it was really exciting and really fun. But I do remember like sitting on my desk one day, cause this is back when you used to get like a lot of snail mail, like before things like Carta existed and you got like digital stock certificates. And I just got a lot of physical documents on my desk every single day. And I remember, I think I have a picture where I took a picture of it and it was just like paper on paper on paper. And, you know, everything was a fire, everything, everyone needed something. And I just remember being like, what are we doing here every day? Like, what is this? And, um, 
I kept thinking like, when am I going to figure out a, my career path? And, and I hope that I'm, I'm making an impact on my company, my colleagues, you know, like, like for me, that was just the thing that mattered is I wanted to make sure I was making a difference or that it, it mattered. And I mean, the coolest thing is looking back at those days and knowing how we were just duct taped together. Um, and it was like, you know, in some days we were just like willing the business to exist. And it's just great to look back and say like, it's all going to be fine. You know, like hard work, perseverance, it, it pays off. And it's wonderful to look back and see that our early efforts of experimentation have turned into a firm that has had a huge impact on the New York um, startup ecosystem. And like, I couldn't be more proud of that. And then same thing goes for Galvanize and Upslope, like being a ninth employee at Galvanize and kind of doing that whole thing of like, okay, I'm going to leave another known brand to start something else. Um, and seeing the impact that we've had locally here in Colorado and, and also Galvanize has a footprint in eight other markets. And, and that same kind of impact has flourished over the last five years. And I just want to continue that. And so I think having the faith that I didn't yet have seven years ago that, you know, just put in the work, it'll happen. Um, and it may not look like what you thought it was going to look like, but it's so much fun. I don't know what else I'd want to be doing as a career. It's the best. Kate, again, uh, I can't thank you enough. The founders, I mean, that are listening to this episode will be sure to gain some valuable insight from what you've shared. Yeah, happy to be here. And um, uh, the biggest takeaway I can say to founders is, you know, evaluate your investment partners as you would an employee. You know, they're they're a key part of the factor if you choose to raise money and and not all checks are considered equal. So definitely make sure your understanding of how their firm operates and what their expectations are are really key. So I, I can't stress that enough is you know, do your diligence on your investors. Um, the good ones will be happy to share all their background stuff. Thanks again to our sponsor, Brex, the first corporate credit card for startups. Brex was built for founders managing growing tech businesses and has been adopted by some of the best startups. Brex perfected the corporate credit card by rebuilding the credit card processing and issuing technology from scratch. Brex offers instant online signup with no founder liability or security deposit required. By underwriting your company based on equity raise and cash in the bank, Brex can offer limits 10 to 20 times higher than other credit cards. Brex also comes with simple expense management software, so you never have to save a receipt again. It helps you run your startup the way it's supposed to be run. I've tried Brex myself, and honestly, it's magical. Sign up for Brex at brex.com. Listeners can get card feeds waived by entering the code UNSEXY during sign-up. Brex, the first corporate credit card for startup. For any of our listeners who found this podcast helpful, click the subscribe button and follow us on our social handles that we provide in our description. We are always looking for more challenging topics to dive deep into. If you have any great topics we could talk about on the Unsexy Startup, please send a message to the email that I've provided in the link below. Until next episode, this is Smai Parikh signing off.